How's everyone doing? Sunday night, it's February, the spring is coming. It's definitely, it's getting hot. I saw a guy wearing shorts today. Truly a proclamation of the summer. It is on its way, guys. Devon summer is on its way. Um, great to be with you again this evening. Um, if we've not met before, my name's Ed. I'm married to Jess. We've got two little girls, Phoebe and Zoe. And with a whole lot of other people, we have the joy of leading this church. And um, I guess there's only one thing you need to know for this evening is that um, our goal and dream is that this place would feel a lot more like home than it does church. And so do whatever you need to do to make yourself feel at home in this place. Um, and tonight we are, um, we're kind of, this is the penultimate uh, talk in a series of talks we've done called Not the Sunday Club, looking at the book of Acts and the way the early church formed and the way it then grew explosively and spread across the known world and how our faith, therefore, is not consigned to some neat and tidy corner of our lives where faith is just something that's a part of our lives, but actually it was intended to change us so that we change the places and the people that we encounter with the love and the power of Jesus. That's the goal of church. That's what it exists for. And I don't know about you, but it just feels a little bit to me as though something is happening in the life of our church at the moment, something that um, God is doing amongst us. It's like he's moving by his Holy Spirit and he's, he's challenging us and he's, he's changing us and he's calling us to something a little bit new. And I feel like, to be honest, I really feel like he's, he's shaping us and he's, he's changing us into the people that he intended us to be. I don't know about you, but I've heard stories in the last few weeks of people who are kind of dropping things that are not truly part of their identity and they're finding... Uh, a new sense of identity in Jesus. There are people who are getting free from addiction or from, uh, from pain or from uh, stuff in their past and they're moving on with it. I'm hearing stories in our youth and in our students and, and in our, our toddler group as well of just places where it feels like the Spirit of God is moving people and, and nudging them and, and changing them. And it feels a little bit as though God is stirring us up. Does anyone else get that feeling or is it just me? Yeah, a couple of other people, that's good. I get the feeling that God's doing that. Last Sunday morning, a wonderful lady called Sarah came and she um, came to me during uh, the bit of the service at the end where we pray for each other. And, and she was kind of, you know, she looked distressed and she came to me and she said, I just feel like God's speaking to me. My heart's pounding in my chest. And my heart's beating so fast. And uh, all she really knew is that she felt like God was speaking to her. And so I kind of like just recklessly assumed that it wasn't a heart attack um, and carried on and was like, what do you feel like God's saying? What do you feel like he's saying to us right now? And she came up here and she shared beautifully this story of her life and the struggles that she's going through right now. And let's be honest, we all have things that are struggles, don't we? But she talked about, um, we were talking about worship that day. And she talked about the way that God comes close and shows us who he really is, that he's real, that he's not far away, that he's not distant from us, but that he's close. And it kind of reminded me uh, this week, I've been thinking about what she said. It reminded me that we're in this, this paradox of a thing called the church. Um, that although we meet together in this place on Sundays, this is our, our kind of gathering point. That um, we read the Bible together, we pray, we drink coffee, we uh, sing some songs. I heard somebody call it uh, Christian karaoke the other day, which I absolutely loved. I'm going to call it that from now on. Um, but actually the power of the church is, is most visible, not when we're gathered in this place, 
praying for each other and, and encouraging each other. The, the power of God and the power of the church is most visible when we are dispersed, when we're out in the, in the world, in the places that we spend most of our time uh, alongside other people, when we are living real lives in sometimes really challenging places. And the reason that we come together, the reason that we gather once a week is not just to have a nice club, but actually so that we would go out, sent by the Holy Spirit to each of those places and each of those moments in the power of God. That's the, the paradox of the church. And um, today, I guess, I want to um, come towards the end of this series, and I just want to zoom in a little bit on that. I want to pick up this theme as we go through the book of Acts. Um, a few weeks ago, Jess, my wife, and Vanessa were speaking, um, and uh, there you can hear all of the, the past talks for this series on our, our podcast. If it Podcast? Podcast. Podcast. Sorry, just rebooting. Podcast. Um, you can find them on our podcast and um, you can listen to all of them from there. And the book of Acts, if you've been reading it at home, it tells this fascinating story because it's like the, the story of how the church came to be and how they started in Jerusalem and people got together and they started to live this, this radical and, and different life focused on the things of Jesus that they were learning and, and discovering about themselves. And, and they went on and they shared stuff. But, but pretty quickly, the book of Acts became comes the story of a guy called Paul, a, a man who had a lot to do with the early church. Paul, who had in, initially intended to destroy the church, he'd come to, to persecute it and to, to take it down, to, to discourage, to disprove the things that they believed. And yet Paul, because of an encounter with Jesus, becomes one of the most influential, one of the most significant men in the whole history of the church. And he begins to travel and he goes from Jerusalem to these other cities and these other places uh, around the Roman Empire at the time. And he goes to visit these places and, and he speaks to these people. And sometimes they responded really well and they absolutely loved it and they responded amazingly. And sometimes they didn't respond so well and they hated it and they persecuted him and uh, they beat him and they uh, whipped him. And one time they even left him for dead outside the walls of the city. And some people found him just before he died and brought him uh, back and, and gave him his strength. And this guy called Paul, he goes from place to place and he ends up uh, in the city of Athens in Greece waiting for some of his friends to arrive. And if you've got a Bible with you, um, I want to encourage you to look up these verses with me. If you've got a phone on you, I want to encourage you to look it up as well. Partly because that way you know that I'm not just making this up. And partly because as you read it, I think it will make more sense to you uh, to read along with me. It's also, just in case you've got a dumb phone or something, it's going to appear on the screens. Um, and so if you want to um, read along in that way, you can as well. But we're going to go to Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. I'll give you a chance to, to find it. Acts 17, 16 says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Great insult. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about, the listen, uh, talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, 
I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives himself, gives himself, rather he himself, sorry, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the design being as like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising them from the dead. Let's take a moment to pray, just as we consider those words. God, I thank you that you are speaking to us tonight, that you're speaking to us through these words that Paul spoke thousands of years ago in the city of Athens. And I pray that as we think about them, as we understand them, as we ponder them, that we would see Jesus, the living word, uh, speaking to us tonight. Amen. Okay. So who here has some kind of insurance policy? A car insurance policy, yeah, a handful of people. Like life insurance, home insurance, something like that. There's a few hands that didn't go up. You know, just want to say, I hope you didn't drive here. Um, but, you know, whether you drive a car, whether you own a house, whether you're alive, and, and if you weren't alive, there would be a problem for someone else. Whatever kind of insurance you have, most of us have to deal with an insurance company at some point in our lives. And um, that's not always the most pleasant experience. But the idea behind it is very simple. The idea is that for an agreed and sometimes extortionate amount of money, uh, they agree to, to compensate you, to pay you back for any uh, damage you might suffer while uh, driving or uh, traveling or in your house. And that sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? It sounds like you can kind of offset the risk of something else by uh, having insurance. But the issue is that no matter how hard we try, no matter how good the uh, algorithms are that they use to calculate our premiums, no matter how many mitigations that we put in place, uh, if you're here and you've got a black box in your car, you'll know how annoying that can be. No matter how many things that we do, there are some things that are just never truly under our control. There are things that we can't insure ourselves against. And having traveled for hundreds of miles across the Roman world, Paul finds himself in an ancient Greek city, the city of Athens, famous for its culture, that has tried to do just that, that has tried to insure itself against every religious risk. Because they, like all of us, are faced with uncertainty. Life, death, good, evil, God, and something else. And they've tried to cover every base. Everything to them is sacred, and at the same time, nothing is sacred. And as Paul walks around this ancient city, the thing that he notices, the thing that catches his attention, are that it is full of amazing buildings. These buildings, they're temples, and they are altars built to the worship of every god imaginable. People are worshipping the god Zeus. People are worshipping Apollo. 
People are worshipping Nike, the uh, patron saint of trainers. Um, you know, people are gathered around and they're creating temples and, and statues to these gods who they worship, even especially Athena, the goddess who gives her name uh, to the city of Athens, the goddess of, of victory and wisdom in their culture, that the city's named after her. And everywhere you look, there are marble statues and gold inscriptions that paint a picture of the gods they follow. This is a city that is full of every religion, every type of idol, every type of idea and philosophy. It's in this place. And in the midst of all of those things, the Apostle Paul finds an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God, to an unknown God. You see, this is the great insurance policy of the people of Athens. Even though they recognize every single God and philosophy and idea that are present in their culture, they want to cover every base. They want to mitigate the risk that there might possibly be a God that they haven't recognized and bowed down and worshipped. And so they dedicate and create an altar to a God that they don't even know. Athens is a city and it's a city full of worship in many ways, but they don't really know who it's for. And Paul says to them, uh, kind of... Smugly, I see in every way you are very religious. That's no understatement. In every way they are very, very religious. And you know what? We could look back with our kind of smug post-enlightenment uh, skepticism of their society and, and just think of how they had swallowed every religious idea and belief and taken them on. But actually, if we were to look at our own society, you would see a lot of the same things, I think. Uh, 20 years ago, people might have described themselves as new atheists. That was the big movement of the time. People felt that it was clear that there was no God. Our, our rational minds couldn't accept that. It was seen as old-fashioned and irrational. But in the last few decades, we've seen something shifting in that. In, in the census from 2011, more and more people now describe themselves not as atheists, but as, as spiritual, but not religious. I think we're living in a society that is in many ways, uh, it doesn't want to believe while desperately holding on to the belief that there is hope in something more to this life. And if you find yourself in that place tonight, I would encourage you to keep searching. I think there is more to life than this. There's more to life than the things that we can see and touch and experience. There is something spiritual that is worth looking after. And I want to encourage you to go after that. But I also want to invite you to try Alpha with us after Easter because it is the perfect place to explore those things. Because when Paul begins to speak about Jesus in this world that, that kind of has a religious insurance, he's surrounded by philosophy and, and religion of every kind. And they take him to this rocky outcrop, this place in the city of Athens called the Areopagus. I think I've got a photo of it uh, here coming up. Any moment now. There it is. Um, the arrow's not there. I've added that. Um, and that's, that's literally it. Like, that's the rock. That's the space where they took Paul to meet. And it was a, a space where a council gathered um, and they would pronounce judgment on different beliefs and ideas, but they would also pronounce judgment on people. They could condemn people to death. It was a group of powerful and influential people to them. And Paul begins, he stands up surrounded by these philosophers, these, these brain boxes of the age, and he proclaims this amazing message. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and does not live in temples built by human hands. Can you imagine with the temple behind? 
the Acropolis, the temple to Athena, standing on the hill behind them, he says he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as though he needs everything, uh, anything from us. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath. For one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out and appointed their times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. For though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. So you can imagine the moment, Paul standing on this rock in the middle of a hot Greek day, the temples around him looking down on the place where they stand, proclaiming that God doesn't live in these temples and these statues and these inscriptions and these altars. It was countercultural in that moment, but actually I think it's countercultural for us today. It's countercultural for us right now. Just as it was in Athens, we can surround ourselves with the structures and the, the systems of religion. Um, we can even come to church every Sunday and, and do all the right things and say all the right things, but lose sight of the very one who gives that stuff meaning. Without much thinking, we could become a Sunday club. We could become a group of people whose, whose lives are not really affected by God in our everyday. Instead, we've confined him to a place that we feel like our religious life fits in a neat and tidy religious institution. And I don't think we were ever intended for that. Instead, and here's what I really want to say tonight, we were made for proximity with God. We were made for proximity with God. At the heart of our faith in Jesus is this. God is not far away. He's not distant. He's not disinterested. He's not disconnected from our everyday life. And he doesn't require us to build him temples of stone and statues to honor him. He doesn't need to be impressed by our skills, our inscriptions, our silver, our gold, our possessions. What he wants and what he desires most of all is proximity with us. Proximity with us. In Jesus... God has come near to us. It says, though he created all things, he, he gave them purpose and breath. He still wants to be with us. See, it's a, another paradox of the Christian faith that God, who is, who is transcendent, who is big, who is powerful, is also imminent. He's right with us right now. That's why Jesus is given the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel literally means God with us. That's why Jesus walked and talked and, and uh, cried and suffered with people because he came near to us. And actually, this is the most controversial claim of the Christian faith, I think. Not only did God create all things and give them being, but he also comes so close that we could have relationship with him. For in him, it says, we live and move and have our being. See, Paul's actually surrounded by philosophers and deep thinkers, and he's even quoting back to them one of their own philosophers in those words. But I think it's still true for us today. God doesn't need our help. God doesn't need us to do anything. He's already at work in the world around us, but he wants to live in us so that the very life we live and the breath that we breathe could be saturated and full of his power and his purpose. 
Because when we live like that, it, it changes us and it changes everything around us. It changes the place that you work, changes your office, it changes your family, it changes how you treat the people around you, your co-workers, even the ones you don't like. It changes the way that you study at uni or college. It changes the way that you spend your money, how you organize your relationship. If we truly believed that God was within touching distance of our lives, it would change everything about the way that we live. I heard a few years ago about a teacher who comes to this church, and um, I can't imagine any worse job in the world, if I'm honest. Teachers, major respect to you. I'm intimidated by other people's children. Uh, the small ones are like pack animals. The big ones are scary, and they, like, they grunt. I don't understand. But um, teachers, I respect you. And I remember this, this teacher telling me that um, the reason they did this job was because it was their calling. They didn't do it because it was like, oh, well, you know, um, I, I just, I, I need something to do and I can impart knowledge and I need the money. No, there was something more than that. This was like a sense of purpose and calling for them. Uh, and I remember asking them, like, uh, they were telling me, I, my goal is to bring the presence of God into my classroom. And I was like, well, how do you do that? How do you bring the presence of God into the place that you work? And they said this, it's very simple. Every morning before my class arrives, I walk around the desks and the chairs and I pray for them. Pray for the ones who are struggling at home with their families. I pray for the ones who are uh, struggling with their grades. I pray for the ones who are an absolute pain in the neck, but I still want to see them thrive. I pray for the ones that annoy me, and I let God do the rest. I let God do the rest. This is the reality of a approximate God. His presence and his power, they begin to shape the world around us. And the real question is, do we believe that he's nearby? Do we believe that we could reach out and touch him in every moment of our day? Paul finds himself on that rock in the center of Athens with some of the greatest, most influential minds of his time, uh, with all these different ideas that shaped his culture and the time that they live in. I did a bit of research into this. He mentions at the beginning these two types of philosophers, the Epicureans, uh, and they are a fascinating bunch. They believe that there is a God, but that God is probably far away that he's detached and not interested in creation, that if God is there at all, then he's not, he's not involved in our everyday lives. That would be far too uh, small for him to be involved in. And they believe that. And then the Stoics, they're the opposite. They, they believe that God and the world, the created world, are basically the same, this kind of pantheism. To them, everything is part of God. And what Paul is saying to them, boldly on a rock in the center of the city is that neither of those things are really true because in both cases you end up with a God who has no power and no presence and no proximity to our everyday lives. You know, proximity is not a word that we use very often anymore. And I was tempted to, to not uh, base my talk around the word proximity. And then I thought about when I'm parking my car. How many people know the, the fear and the joy of beep? And who plays the game to see how close they can get it without actually hitting the wall? And who doesn't trust their parking sensors and sometimes occasionally drives into another car at Ikea? Um, you know, we've all been there, haven't we? But there's this image for us. Those sensors in your car, they're called proximity sensors. They tell you how close something is. And as you get closer and closer and closer, you begin to, to hear the sound grow stronger. You know, I think if we could imagine that God is closer than we think, that he's more proximate than we think, that he's drawn close to us. Gareth Harper, who was with us last week, talking about worship, and he said this thing that stayed with me all week. He said, we all worship something. 
See, we all construct things, whether we know we're doing it or not, that begin to replace God in our lives. And the more things we end up worshipping, the more material things, the more status, the more identity, the more things that take the place of God in our lives, the more the material and the powerful grab and hold our attention. And the more we become like those things and the less we become like Jesus. And see, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, whether you'd call yourself a Christian for 100 years or, or less than 10 minutes, we all are at risk of that. We're all at risk of treating God as though he lives in this stone building that we gather in every Sunday, as though this is the place where he dwells. And we forget that he goes with us to the places that we go. We all become like the skeptics of Athens if we're not careful distracted by the impressive uh, religious ideals and, and ignoring the very possibility that God is right here, right now, imminently with us. And in Matthew 28, just as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and he's promised that he'll send the Holy Spirit to be with uh, everyone until he returns, he says this to them. He says, and surely I am with you until the very end of the age. And surely I am with you until the very end of the age. I wonder this evening, could we believe that God is closer than we think? Could we allow our faith to not be contained in in religious ideals and structures? Could we seek and find God in the places that we go, that we long to see him change and transform? Could we believe that he's here right now by his spirit, that he wants to speak to us? that he wants to draw near to us. And no matter how far away we feel from him, actually he's within touching distance the whole time. Can I pray for that for us? Would you stand with me? We're going to pray now in this space. We're just going to leave a little bit of time and a little bit of silence as well to kind of allow God to speak to us. The Catholic Church have a beautiful way of describing this. They call it the invocation of the Holy Spirit. This idea that when we wait and we become aware that God is already here. We don't conjure him up. We don't invite him into the room. He is here already and he wants to meet with us. But but he asks us to reach out to him. And so you might want to close your eyes. You might want to put your hands out in front of you if you you want to receive uh, something from God. It's not magic. It's not special. It's just a a way of saying, God, I'm open. It's kind of the opposite of crossing your arms. And it's a way of saying, God, I'm open to what you want to do and what you want to say. So come, Holy Spirit. Spirit of God. Make us aware of your presence right now here with us, whether for the first time or for the hundredth time, I pray that we would encounter you in this place. That in you we live and move and have our being. That in your presence is the fullness of joy. That the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible says, lives in us.